fair warning, this show contains strong language and adult themes from time to time. Sorry, Jerry can't help it. Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. It's your pal Jerry here, and I'm excited to tell you all about my thrilling new limited series podcast called The Halloween Conspiracy with Jerry Hara. In each episode of The Halloween Conspiracy, I delve into the backstory and history of infamous local urban legends, myths, and folklore, with stories that have haunted me my entire life, like the Montauk Project, the Amityville Horror House, Nikolai Tesla's Wardenclyffe Laboratory. I need you to tune in and help me get to the bottom of Long Island's biggest mysteries. Listen to this special three-part The Halloween Conspiracy with your host, me, Jerry Hara, starting October 1st, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your favorite shows. Your life may just depend on it. You've seen these guys at all the horror shows and comic cons. Now you can get your very own inked up merch, the finest in embroidered horror and sci-fi themed merchandise. From Lost Boys to Street Trash, from Chopping Mall to Cobra Kai, Inked Up has the best in embroidered beanies, baseball caps, and patches. Now they've even got their own Jaws-inspired Amity Island board shorts. You gotta take a look, these things are cool. Visit their Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash inked up merch. Are you looking to get your own printed or embroidered merch? Inked Up has been in business for over 10 years. Whether you're looking for merch for your band or you need crew logo shirts and hats for your first film production, you need some sick looking perks for your Kickstarter project, Inked Up can accommodate your needs with their custom silkscreen printing and embroidery services. Visit inkedupmerch.com and tell them Jerry sent you. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on The Offering, you had better obey, because we're taking you back to 1988 with the science fiction cult classic, They Live. Gentlemen, friends from beyond the binary, this is your good pal Jerry Hara, and welcome to The Offering. Ooh, Lord, it is hot out. God, we are deep into the summer, and it is sticky, moist, and humid, and I don't mean in a good way. So, let's talk about summer blockbusters. It's a tradition, it's my favorite time of year, when all the major studios roll out their big pieces of shit. No, no, some of them are really good, but... A lot of times it's all hype. Uh, There's been good sequels and bad sequels that I've seen this summer. Jurassic World Dominion is terrible. It is a 
terrible half-baked film that spends too much money and time on the wrong aspects of the story they should have been telling, which is man and dinosaur coexisting. That's the movie that we wanted. That's the movie that is hinted at, but unfortunately, they do not pull the trigger. Now, sequel done well, sequel done great. Top Gun Maverick, fantastic. Honestly, one of the best films I've seen this year, and it defies all logic and beats sequelitis. It somehow feels fresh and a perfect continuation of the film that we all grew up loving. So you, it's a tale of two sequels, one that just didn't work and one that was inspired and had a story to tell. And I think that's the secret. We're getting this summer a lot of original pictures. Saw Elvis, loved Elvis, saw the black phone, loved the black phone. It's great to see, even though I guess you could say Elvis is an intellectual property unto himself. It's an original film. It's Baz Luhrmann. It's nice to have these original films. It's okay. We can have the sequels. You can have your Marvel movies. Jerry isn't going to come and shake you up and beat you to death and take away the Marvel films from your dead, cold hands. No, enjoy your Marvel films. A lot of them have been underwhelming. Like, I really like Shang-Chi. Uh, I've kind of been half-baked at a lot of the stuff. Like, I didn't think Multiverse of Madness was that good. But what is good is the return of movies in America. We are going back to cinemas in record numbers. This has been a hugely, hugely profitable year. The numbers go back to 2019, and they say we're beating 2019's box office. 2018, you had like, you know, Avengers and all these other movies. We're beating 2018's numbers. So it's great to have everybody back at the cinemas on the seats that Nicole Kidman farted on. With all the crap going on, great movies will be made. 2022, it's summer. Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Yes, I'm going there. I don't give a fuck. We are basically losing a lot of our human rights here in the United States. I have friends abroad to all my listeners and friends over in Ireland, my friends in the United Kingdom. They've written to me and they've said, Jerry, Jesus Christ, I don't know how you're going to save everybody. No, they didn't say that. They basically said, I feel really bad for you. It's crazy when people from other countries say, I feel bad that you live in, in these times and that you're going through all this bullshit. But you know what? Look, bad times don't last but bad guys do. That's my good pal, Scott Hall, AKA Razor Ramon. Look, man, we'll get through this. It sucks. Yeah, there's a lot of tyranny going on. There's a lot of things that are not fair. Uh, there's a lot of people in the government encroaching on our basic freedoms. And that's really fucking scary. It's a scary time to be alive. But hey, at least the good thing is with all of this crap going on, great movies will be made. Art always triumphs. It At the end of the day, art is what wins. It captures our imaginations. It puts all the emotions back into our heart and allows us to live a better life. Speaking of which, yeah. Don't forget, I'm at Jerry Hara, Instagram, um, Grindr. No, I, I just made that up. I don't know what that is. Is Grindr a dating app? Let me know. Hit me up in the comments. Maybe it's something that I should be on. Why not? I don't see why not. Uh, you know, 
It's 2022. I'm living my best life. Uh, Speaking of living your best life, man, this is my first real crack at a John Carpenter movie. Grew up. He's obviously one of my heroes. Director, composer, smoker of weed, player of NBA 2K on Xbox Live. It's John Carpenter. Yeah, you got to love this guy. He's great. Uh, He even banged Adrian Barbeau for a time. So that's pretty cool, right? Huh? Do you know who Adrian Barbeau is? Well, put it into your little Google machine and search that motherfucker. She had a rack. Woo! Rack of lamb, baby. All right, folks, uh, I digress, especially when it comes to Adrian Barbeau and her fantastic sweater meat. Okay, here we go, folks. We're going deep, deep, deep into the world of They Live with one of my favorite pro wrestlers, Rowdy Roddy Piper. He loves a good dirty joke. He wouldn't mind. He was a fun guy. God, do I miss him. So let's do this. Everybody, hands on deck. Put your sunglasses on, your Ray-Bans, and we're going to go back to 1988 and witness the magic that is They Live. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Roderick George Toombs, better known to the world as Rowdy Roddy Piper. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. It's probably one of the greatest lines uh, ever recorded for anything. Folks, I'm talking about They Live. What do these things want, and why are they here? You still don't get it, do you, boy? They have recruited the rich and the powerful. They're running the whole show. Wake up! They're all about you, all around you. Blinded us to the truth! Take a look. They are safe as long as they are not discovered. I don't know what they are or where they came from, but we gotta stop them. Stay away from me. Put these on. They have us. Look at them. They're everywhere. We have no other choice. I don't like this one bit. Leave it alone, man. It ain't none of my business, ain't none of yours. We have been lulled into a trance. Listen to what I'm saying to you. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. Control us! You're sending some kind of signals on TV sets. I've got one that can see. Mama don't like tattletale. Now we start spilling some blood. Let's go! Push I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick And I'm all out of bubblegum. Came out November 4th, 1988. Cost $3 million. Carpenter said he would gladly do the film for 3.5 and final cut. Universal said okay. <laughs> it made $4.8 million in its opening weekend. Uh, ended up going on to make $13 million. Opened at number one. What else was burning up the box office at the time? Well, a little film called Child's Play. And the big Halloween movie, along with, uh, you know, Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. Uh, 
We also had at that time Scrooged, The Land Before Time, and of course, the classic that no one will ever forget, Ernest Saves Christmas, which, uh, you know what? Pretty good movie. I've gone on to appreciate the work of uh, Ernest as we've gone on later in life. Look, Big Trouble in Little China, okay, comes out in 86. It's a great movie, but even though it made money, it wasn't what 20th Century Fox wanted. They were looking for, let's face it, an Indiana Jones franchise. That was the whole purpose of Jack Burton. He was supposed to go on many different adventures. Unfortunately, we never got them. Up until recently with the comic book, which John Carpenter helped make, and we got to see Jack Burton's further adventures. This is kind of a weird time. Big Trouble doesn't hit. Carpenter gets a deal with Universal. Uh, in 87, does Prince of Darkness, where he has one of his buddies, which is Alice Cooper. He's in that movie as the leader of the homeless people. Uh, kind of a great friendship between the two of them. They get along very well. Essentially, the deal with Prince of Darkness is you've got $3 million, and that's it. That's what we're giving you. You'll get Final Cut, but they had developed a formula that these movies would play theatrically, almost as a formality, because where Carpenter really cleans up and makes the, the lion's share of his money and acclaim is home video. John Carpenter's films were kind of hit or miss throughout the 80s. This is one of the greatest runs. I think Carpenter, like when we compare people like Wes Craven, George Romero, Dario Argento, this guy has a run that's unparalleled where like he goes from Halloween 78 up until I want to say Mouth of Madness comes out in the early 90s. Nobody had a run like that where it was just one after the other. Some are better than others. People have favorites. Starman's one of my favorites. Halloween is one of my favorites. I think John Carpenter's a fucking genius. And he's a, a weird dude because he composes the films as well. The music is just as much of a star of the film. I mean, can you imagine Halloween without that theme? You know, it's absolutely iconic. Child's Play was the, the big movie at this time, though. Child's Play came out, did pretty well. Word of mouth was very good, and then it shot up to number one, which is crazy. But that was the big Halloween film that year. Aside from Halloween 4, Child's Play was the one that people went to see, made a ton of money, worked out for everybody involved, especially our good friend Chucky. John Carpenter goes to hang out with Alice Cooper at WrestleMania 3. Alice is friends with all the wrestlers. He says, yeah, come backstage. You get to meet everybody. And that's where he meets Rowdy Roddy Piper. Him and Roddy get along, uh, John Carpenter. They, they really become friends. And he's like, man, this guy is great. I would really love to do something with this guy, but got to figure out the right project, you know, right project, right time, good script. Fun fact, number two, the role of Nada was originally written for Kurt Russell. But John Carpenter felt he should cast somebody else after casting Russell in four of his films prior to this one. He did Elvis with uh, Kurt Russell. Fantastic. Watch it. It's a TV movie. He did Escape from New York, The Thing, and Big Trouble in Little China. Unfortunately, at this time, 
Russell's doing like tango and cash, and he's trying to up his profile as a, a big star, perhaps even an action star of that time. It's unfortunate. I, I think there's a world, there's another universe, a multiverse, if you will, uh, where Kurt Russell plays this character and uh, it works out. I, I don't know. I could see it. It's not like, oh my God, that's a huge fucking stretch. The reason they chose the name Nada was because it means nothing in Spanish. And that was what we're supposed to assume the protagonist is of They Live. He's nothing. He's no one. He's every man. The idea for They Live came from a short story called Eight O'Clock in the Morning. It's written by Ray Nelson. It was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in November of 1963. It's basically involving an alien invasion in the tradition of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which Nelson, along with artist Bill Ray, you know him from Tales from the Crypt, all that good stuff, adapted into a story called Nada, published in the Alien Encounters comic anthology. In April of 1986, John Carpenter describes Nelson's story as a DOA type of story in which a man is put into a trance by a stage hypnotist. When he awakens, he realizes that the entire human race has been hypnotized and that alien creatures are controlling humanity. He has only until 8 o'clock in the morning to solve the problem. Carpenter acquires the film rights to this. He thinks that it's absolutely brilliant. The short story is something that's stuck with him since he was a kid. He writes the screenplay after acquiring the film rights, and he uses Nelson's story as a basis for the film structure. Because the screenplay was a product of so many sources, a short story, a comic book, and ultimately input from his cast and crew, Carpenter decides to use the pseudonym Frank Armitrage, an allusion to one of the filmmaker's favorite writers, H.P. Lovecraft. Henry Armitrage is a character in the seminal classic by Lovecraft, The Dunwich Horror. Carpenter always felt a close kinship with Lovecraft's worldview. And according to the director, Lovecraft wrote about the hidden world, the world underneath, the one that we do not see. His stories were about gods who are repressed, and they were once on earth, and now they're coming back to wreak havoc and vengeance on mankind. The world underneath has a great deal to do with they live. There's some crazy stuff in this movie. It's hard to describe how this all works, but let me preface it with the alien design in this movie, because this movie is about aliens. The aliens superficially resemble walking, rotting corpses. Carpenter didn't want to do the typical aliens that look like high-tech creatures like Close Encounters, other science fiction films at the time. He decided that since these beings were corrupting humanity they should themselves resemble human beings. And that's a choice. It's a a brilliant choice because the look of the aliens in this movie is now iconic. Definitely changed the game. Okay, so unlike most Hollywood actors, Roddy has life experience written all over him. Carpenter was impressed with Roddy Piper. Really felt that there was some kind of a star quality that was untapped. And it was time. It was time for him to pull the trigger. The They Live script circulated in Hollywood circles. 
it was pitched after Kurt Russell couldn't do it. It was pitched to Stallone. It was pitched to a bunch of different people at that point. They were trying to get any star they could attach, but Carpenter was like, oh, I've got $3 million to make this movie. He ended up getting 3.5 and Final Cut, as it was his deal with Universal. But he kind of felt that a Hollywood pretty boy wouldn't be exactly the right fit for this movie. And he also knew that if they attached a star to the movie, the star would drive the budget up and also kind of overshadow the story. And that was something that he didn't want to do. He says, fuck it. I'm going with uh, Roddy Piper. And Universal was kind of like, hey, we dig this. He's, he's a big WWF superstar. Millions of people see him on television every week. He's got a built-in fan base. Makes sense. So Carpenter was really, if, and you know, this is the other thing, like Keith David, like one of his big debuts is the thing. It's crazy because he's looking for this secondary lead in They Live. He's looking for someone to play the partner in crime, the buddy to the, the Roddy Piper character. He says, I need somebody who's not going to be a traditional sidekick, but a guy who could hold his own against Piper. And to this end, he wrote the role of Frank in this movie specifically for Keith David. He was at a random premiere for a movie and he runs into Keith David on the red carpet and he says, listen, he's like, I've been writing this movie and I think that you would be perfect. In fact, I couldn't imagine anybody else playing it. So that's kind of how it, it came together. It's, you know, no great mystery. Carpenter had a vision. He knew who he wanted to play this character. And luckily, Keith David had an opening in his schedule and they made it work. I digress. We can't get there without talking about my favorite promoter and perhaps embroiled recently in a scandal, sex pest, Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon didn't want to do, uh, he, well, look. Vince McMahon didn't want Piper to do this movie. Carpenter goes to Vinnie Mac. He basically tells him all about the story, and then he thinks that it would be a great co-branding option. You know, they could promote it on the WWF program. Vinnie Mac says, you know, I really don't want Piper to do this movie. And Carpenter's like, yeah, I figured. So McMahon tells Piper that he would find him a different film, a better film, at the same pay rate within four weeks. But Piper passed and ended up splitting with the WWF. Carpenter asks Roddy why, and Piper states plainly that McMahon is a control freak. He didn't want me doing this movie because it wasn't his idea. And when I came back to wrestling, I was twice as important as when I left. And he credits Carpenter and the success of the film. The politics of the wrestling business is something I just don't get. I just can't wrap my head around it. That's what John Carpenter said. He really wanted Roddy Piper but he didn't want him to quit his so-called day job as a wrestler. You know, it just ended up being one of those things where Piper could no longer work with Vincent McMahon because at that point he was stifling his creativity. He had largely been taken out of in-ring action, even though he was in fantastic shape. They stuck him into commentary. And I guess like when you get older in the wrestling business, it's one thing where they, you, you have that natural transition. It happens in the NFL as well where you become an on-air personality or a broadcaster. That's kind of the transition. We just saw Tom Brady sign this huge deal. Definitely get in the bag. I mean, good for him. Ultimately, that's where you go. And Roddy just felt like, I want to be in the action. 
I feel like I've got a couple of good more years in me to perform and really give it my all. Some big paydays, big pay-per-views. Vince McMahon just didn't pay him mind, and I don't blame him. He walked away from a, a lucrative wrestling contract, but ultimately I think this was the best thing for him to do. Fun fact. Carpenter brought real homeless folks into the production for several scenes and smaller characters. He gave them food as well as paychecks. I thought that was a pretty classy thing to do, said Roddy Piper. What's even crazier is when they were making this movie in and around Los Angeles, they had to pay off gang members. Carpenter personally paid gang members to kind of work as security and also leave the production alone. So Carpenter really took this to the streets in order to make this happen, whether it was casting the homeless people, whether it was paying off gangs. Carpenter had a vision. He was going to execute it. They Live was shot in eight weeks during March and April of 1988, principally on location in downtown Los Angeles, the budget of only slightly greater than $3 million. Again, I'm pushing this point home because some people say 3.5. Some people say it was $4 million. I can't get... The popular opinion was that it was $3 million, but I think Carpenter had to push the budget up a little bit just to get that production value, put a little bit more polish. I think Carpenter works best when he is within limitations. You look at Escape from L.A., which is very much a blank check film, a lot of early CGI that just looks terrible. He got the whole kit and caboodle from Paramount on that film. And ultimately, he's worse for it. I think when the studio gives their mandate and says, this is your budget, this is what you have to work with, he really flourishes and puts every dollar on the screen. One of the highlights of this film is obviously the five and a half minute alley fight between Nada and Frank over a pair of special sunglasses. Carpenter recalls that the fight took only three weeks to rehearse. It was an incredibly brutal and funny fight along the lines of the slugfest between John Wayne and uh, Victor McLaglin in The Quiet Man. That was the inspiration. John Carpenter has gone on record. He still wants to make a Western. And I feel the score, which is by John Carpenter and uh, Alan Howarth, who I got to meet recently at a convention. His stuff is just fantastic. Like the Halloween soundtrack, excuse me, the Halloween 3 soundtrack with Alan Howarth. Alan also worked on Big Trouble and Little China's score with him. Fantastic. This movie is very much in the vein, especially the score of like a Sergio Leone film. It's it's very much a Western, except it takes place in the 80s in Los Angeles. There was an advanced screening of this film, believe it or not. Carpenter puts together this rough assembly cut. He says, all right, we're going to have a screening over at the Los Angeles uh, City Walk. And then a young kid exits the film, and he's really confused, and John decides to talk to him. And he says, you know, I was brought up watching the Rambo films, and I was expecting this to be jingoistic and rah-rah, and that's not what it was, Mr. Carpenter. This kind of bothered John a bit, that the point of this film was instead the idea of class divide. The subversive nature of this film, obviously, is a big sticking point. There's been a lot of people who have adopted this film for better or worse as you're putting on the sunglasses and you're seeing the truth for what it is. It's kind of like a lot of people on the far right started co-opting the Matrix, the red pill and the blue pill. 
and that they, they took the red pill and they see the truth, man. But truth be told, I would much rather be with Joey Pants eating fake steak because that sounds like a lot more fun than taking the red pill and fucking hanging out with, uh, I don't know, Hannity. What was fucking Sean Hannity? I don't know who these fucking people. I don't even care. I just don't give a shit because they're basically shoveling to people what they want to hear. It's crazy because in this movie, that's exactly what's happening. These aliens are kind of masterminding and puppeteering the human race to work for them. The cops work for them, which is very interesting in this. And and they're humans and they're aware of what's going on. People that are high ranking in government are aware that there's a vast conspiracy happening, but they're fine because all of the politicians, all of the police and the government officials are working in tandem, if not working for the aliens. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. Now, the most definitive account of the films made by the most infamous and influential studios of the 1980s, Canon Films. The Canon Film Guide Volumes 1 and 2 gives you the true stories from the people who made them, and truth is stranger than fiction. From American Ninjas to Masters of the Universe, from Charles Bronson to Chuck Norris, from Bloodsport to Texas Chainsaw 2, take it over the top on your Superman 4 quest for peace. These books have got it all, folks. A passionate journey through the highs and lows of pure 80s goodness. The Canon Film Guide illustrates all the behind-the-scenes mayhem of one of the most beloved cult movie factories of all time. We at The Offering highly recommend these books. They are essential reading for any and all film buffs. The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1 and 2, available now at Amazon, iTunes, or wherever finer books are sold. If you're anything like me, you're always on the lookout for cool, new, original gift items that you could give to your horror and genre-obsessed loved ones, or even something you could get to treat yourself. I found the perfect thing for you. Geek Emporium has custom hand-etched glass art that's the perfect gift. Believe me, when you see these glass mugs, glass jars, and original prints, you're gonna want all of them for your own collection. Geek Emporium covers every genre you can imagine, Marvel, Star Wars, 80s and 90s horror. I'm looking through the website right now, geekemporium.nyc, and I can see featured, they got some gorgeous stuff from Labyrinth with Jennifer Connelly, A Nightmare Before Christmas, I see Brandon Lee's The Crow. They cover the whole genre gamut, it, it's incredible. I met up with these guys at Eternal Con on Long Island, I got my hands on a Sweet Texas Chainsaw Massacre Leatherface glass mug, and a, a Freddy Krueger wooden coffin. All custom. And these are hand-drawn. They were drawing it right in front of me. So what are you waiting for? You can always check out their Etsy shop or head over to geekemporium.nyc right now and scroll through the goods. Trust me, your geek-loving loved one will thank you later. Listeners and fans of The Offering can get their hands on their very own The Offering with Jerry Hara merch, now only at Public. Find your own fresh The Offering with Jerry Hara high-quality merchandise, including t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, long sleeves, stickers, and mugs. Just like the show, we've got gear that's mostly horror, always genre. The Offering with Jerry Hara Tee Public Store has everything you need to represent your favorite podcast. Folks, head on over to teepublic.com right now and pick up your very own Offering Tee today. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. 
got a question or a story you want to share with me, it might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. Shepard Ferry credits the film as a major source of inspiration. Sharing a similar logo for his Obey campaign, which featured Andre the Giant, another WWF collaboration there. (laughs) Not at all. Vince was really pissed about that. Vince did not like the whole Andre has a posse thing, even though it's absolutely iconic now and it's a part of art history. I think in some ways there's a direct correlation between Andy Warhol and Shepard Ferry. That's what I think. I don't care what you think. No, I do. I'll listen to what you say, but I'll, I'll probably discredit it or just pretend you didn't say it. Uh, they Live was the basis for the use of the word obey in Fairy's work. Uh, the movie has a very strong message about the power of commercialism and the way that people are manipulated by advertising. And that's a lot of what Carpenter was trying to get across was that we are all being manipulated or huckstered or misled by the media. And ultimately, a lot of things that happen in this movie kind of come to fruition. I I don't know about the aliens part, but a lot of the way that we consume media and are being fed messages really kind of shines. And it's even more poignant now than it was. And They Live is one of those films that built a reputation and kind of grew. It's gotten bigger. I think it's bigger now than it's ever been because it speaks to people. And what's crazy was Carpenter was like, we're going to do the scenes with the glasses in black and white. And that was a direct response because at that time, Ted Turner was the owner of TNT, TBS, media conglomerate, CNN. He was colorizing classic films. And there were a lot of people, especially filmmakers, who took great offense to that. And they just weren't with it. I don't like the colorization of films. I think it's interesting, but ultimately it kind of looks like shit. And those films were shot in black and white and they're meant to be. So that was kind of his way of raging against the machine and saying, you know what? I'm going to have this movie. It's going to fucking play on 2000 screens and it's going to have sequences that were shot specifically in black and white. So forever being the punk rocker that he is, John Carpenter was able to make that happen. And it's crazy because black and white is kind of a dirty thing in the business, especially in the modern era. Like it was a big deal that Ed Wood was shot at that time in black and white. That's like 94, I believe. I might be wrong about that. Doesn't matter. There's been a lot of films since then. Like you had The Lighthouse, which is a major release that was in black and white. It used to great effect. I mean, it's a stylistic choice. And uh, I dig it. I dig it. This film is a reaction to Reagan's presidency coming to an end. Uh, You know, Reagan gets into office. And this is, again, you're going to see the parallels between the 80s and what we're going through now, especially with a lot of the religious right and everything that is happening. Reagan's presidency is coming to an end in 88. And there's a transition of power because George Bush Sr. is going to be the president. So if you think about that, you had three terms where you had a Republican. The whole thing with Reagan was a return to traditional 
values. We, we want to return to this. We want things to be like the 1950s again, where things were good for white people. But for most other people that were marginalized or minorities, things were kind of shitty. So that was what was going on in the United States at the time. A lot of people, especially Carpenter, felt that there was complete tyranny and control by the Republican Party and that they were really just feeding all of their followers bullshit. They were telling them what they want to hear, which later becomes the job of the media, you know, like Fox News and all that stuff, where you're just you're feeding people the same shit and they eat it up because it's a part of their agenda it makes them angry. It makes them happy. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what they say. It's that they just continually manipulate the viewer. Uh, the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows. At the end of the day, people have said that this is a leftist commentary on the prevailing religion of the day, which was greed. You look at a film like Wall Street. Greed is good. That's the message. The 80s is about Coca-Cola, cocaine, the Brat Pack. You look at a film like Red Dawn, okay? You look at Rambo, First Blood Part 2. These films, they're saying something. There, there definitely is this whole sense of rah, 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 patriotism, Hulk Hogan at the time. Take your vitamins, say your prayers, and you think about it and... He's the white meat baby face Hogan. And Roddy Piper kind of represents the wild card. Perhaps even the answer, the diametrically opposed force that is not telling you to take your vitamins and say your prayers. Roddy Piper just wants to insult you and then beat the shit out of you. And I will say this. I think Roddy Piper is one of the best promos in all of, in the history of wrestling. Like, Jake the Snake Roberts is high up there, but Roddy Piper, man, he was able to cut promos. And he had a notebook, and he would think of all these things that he would say on television. He'd write them down in the notebook. Brings the notebook to John Carpenter and says, hey, could we, like, stick some of these in there? And that's where the chew bubblegum line came from. It was something that he wrote that was basically, it was a tirade against uh, Captain Lou Albano. He ended up using it. He ended up using almost, uh, well, not, yeah, pretty much all of, all the stuff that Roddy Piper had written, you know, as these verbal jabs, ended up making it into the movie. So I think that was pretty cool. Hey, got to go to fun fact, folks. The communicators that are used by the guards near the end of the film are also the same PKE meters that were used in Ghostbusters. So it's actually the same props came from the same effects house. And I never knew that. I looked this up. I found it out the other day. I watched the movie and I'm like, holy shit, the communicators that the aliens are using are just modified PKE meters. So that's pretty DIY. Just recycle what you had in another big gigantic hit. Now the film's original release date advertised in promotional material was to be on October 21st, 1988. It had been pushed back two weeks to avoid the direct competition with Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, which was coincidentally a sequel to a John Carpenter film. There had been suspicions that the film had been pulled from theaters early to avoid embarrassment for the incoming Bush administration. But Carpenter claimed 
that was a confused marketing campaign and everybody was just not on the same page and that was the reason for the film's sudden decline in fortunes after a strong opening weekend. I think a lot of people went to this movie, especially little kids at the time. I saw it in theaters. And we're thinking, okay, it's Roddy Piper versus Aliens. That's very simple. That's how the film was sold. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the movie has a lot more to say than that. It's not just your typical action film. There is depth. There's substance. This is another movie that's like 90 minutes. It's not Carpenter beating around the bush. He's saying front and center, this is what's happening. This is the deal. There's no nuance. There's no like, oh, what was, you know, like when you look at sometimes a filmmaker's work and it's not very out there on front street, you kind of have to figure it out. With this, Carpenter's just like, no, there's aliens. And when you put on the glasses, you can see things for the way they are. To me, that works. That That's kind of the root of the film is that it's very simple. John Carpenter tried to get some tie-in deals. He wasn't going to get, you know, like Ray-Ban, which ended up selling a shit ton of sunglasses because of Tom Cruise uh, and Top Gun. And Ray-Bans became like the hot brand for the 80s. And uh, he would go and he pitched this movie to a bunch of the different sunglass makers. And they were like, Okay, so they use the glasses to see aliens? Oh, we don't want to be involved with something like that. They found it to be too subversive and were afraid that it would affect their brand in a negative light. I don't know, man. I think I think there's a missed opportunity. If this film was made now, there would definitely be some kind of sunglass tie-in, for sure. Here's another fun fact. Unsurprisingly, both Carpenter and Piper have a problem with authority. Who who could have seen that? I have this adolescent hatred of authority, says Carpenter. I've never gotten over it since I was a kid. Piper adds, ask me for my shirt off my back and I will give it to you. Tell me and not a chance. To be perfectly honest with you, I always hated cops. That's Roddy Piper. (laughs) That sounds like... uh, That definitely sounds like Roddy Piper. Piper credits Carpenter and They Live for jumpstarting his wrestler-turned-actor migration. He was the first wrestler ever in the history of wrestling to star in a major motion picture studio film that became number one at the box office that weekend. That gave the itch to, I don't know how many wrestlers at this point who tried to make the transition to the silver screen. And not one of them to this day has had a quality picture, not up until Dwayne Johnson, obviously, and now John Cena, who's really blossomed. If you haven't watched Peacemaker on HBO, goddamn, John Cena really kind of found his foray. You know, you look at the film The Marine, and, and The Marine was a hit, and it's definitely, it's a fun movie, but they were trying to do like, hey, we can make John Cena Arnold Schwarzenegger, or we can make him Sylvester Stallone, and that that wasn't the wave. It, it, that That's not exactly what got him over. It's the same thing with Dwayne Johnson. He had to take all these different roles, you know, whether it was Southland Tales or even stuff like Be Cool. And he had to kind of find himself and figure out what works for his brand. And I think Cena's done that with Peacemaker. I think he's kind of cemented himself now. Uh, Working with James Gunn has obviously uh, helped his career. This film opened up. At number one, I mean, it's a big, strong box office. It made back 
pretty much the money of the budget and the marketing campaign in one weekend. For years after the film's release, even on the movie's DVD commentary, Roddy Piper maintained that the film was based on an actual incident in the 1950s, in which a company manufactured a TV that planted subliminal messages in women's brains, instructing them to make extravagant purchases. Piper was unaware that the documentary he had seen, Les Affaires Bronswick, 1978, was in fact a comedy short. Hey, look, man, it's, that's the power of television. You know, it, it's kind of one of those things. Uh, <laughs> I mean, hey, look, I love Roddy Piper. I got to meet him. And let me tell you something. Incredibly sweet guy. He just really was a class act. He did all these things like wrestling, the movies, whatever he did. Uh, also, star of Hell Comes to Frogtown. Another low-budget classic that uh, I'm sure we'll discuss further on another episode. It was a means to an end. You know, he just wanted to spend time with his family. He was really a very simple man, and that's what mattered to him. So whether it was being on the road as a WWF superstar or whether it was going and doing movies, he just wanted to get back to his family in the Pacific Northwest, and that's what mattered to him. And it's kind of a beautiful thing. Because you see this guy who is obviously a heel as a pro wrestler. And you think to yourself, he really might be a shitty guy in person because you're, you're believing the character that this guy is a complete wacko who can eviscerate you with his words. And that's powerful. He didn't, he didn't have to do anything. Some people say, you know, like, well, his physical build, he might not have been you know, tall enough, but it didn't matter. You believed that he could beat anybody just by the way that he spoke. And that's, that's the power of Roddy Piper. Uh, we got to talk about my good friend, Joe Bob, Joe Bob Briggs, uh, Monster Vision. This is an episode 1991. Uh, the show ran until 1997 on TNT. Roddy Piper mentioned that John Carpenter had wanted him to discuss the film's political subtext which was essentially a criticism of Reaganomics at the time. While doing promotions for the film, Piper had some issues. Due to being in the United States on a green card, you know, Piper was from Canada, Piper felt it wasn't his place to discuss American politics. He also noted that he had rather liked President Reagan and didn't really disagree with the film's politics, but he would shy away from talking about them while promoting the film. Carpenter kind of was like, hey, you know, maybe you, you could put this out there, put it on Front Street. It'll possibly drum up some business for the movie. Piper didn't want to do it. Carpenter, he basically said flat out, this is criticism of Reaganomics and a vehicle to take on Reaganism. Uh, however, over the years, and this is the bad part, folks, Several neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups have co-opted the movie for their own purposes, spreading rumors that it was really an allegory for Jews controlling the media and controlling the world. This forced Carpenter to respond on Twitter in 2017 by stating, They live is about the yuppies and unrestrained capitalism of this country. It has nothing to do with the Jewish control of the world, which is complete slander and a lie. Hey, man. Carpenter, uh, he went to bat for this movie. He stated it. it. This is what I say, man. 
people will take the message of your movie, they'll pervert it. Just like we talked about with The Matrix, a lot of these organizations, they take these films, they co-opt them, they twist them to fit their narrative. And they live, obviously, it's in a kind of a striking indictment on the consumerism that was so rampant in the 80s. Carpenter, growing up with the peace and love of the 60s, and then things kind of taking a dark turn into the 1970s, and that is reflected in his work. The Boogeyman, where does he come to? He comes to the idyllic world of the suburbs. He is this force that was born from the suburbs, and now he's come back to wreak havoc. Before that assault on Precinct 13. Carpenter's got messages in all of his films, and sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're not. Now, in 2010, there was development on a remake of this film with Carpenter in a producing role. Matt Reeves, director of the Apes films, signed on to direct and write the screenplay. The project also shifted away from being a remake of They Live to being a readaptation and repurposing of the original material, 8 o'clock in the morning, ditching the satirical and political elements to make a more modern thriller. Since then, there have been no new announcements. Here's my pitch. If they were going to remake They Live, there's one guy that could do it these days, Jordan Peele. That's the only way I'm interested, and I feel like Peel could put a spin on it, but he's been on such a streak with original material, the forthcoming film Nope, Us, Get Out. I don't think that Peel should touch a remake, but if he chose to do so, he does have a deal in place at Universal who happens to own this property. In July of 2018, They Live was selected to be screened the very prestigious uh, the Venice Classic section at the 75th Annual Venice International Film Festival. Let me tell you something. It's a big honor. They take a lot of movies, you know, like by Orson Welles, what they deem to be classic films. And I think that They Live has cemented itself in the pantheon of great science fiction. It's a very different type of film. It's not something you see. I think there was a lot of smarter science fiction during the 80s. You know, stuff like Blade Runner. There was just a lot going on with these directors and them being, especially Carpenter, being able to make a commentary, a social commentary, by doing something that seems outlandish. And uh, They Live is definitely a product of its time. It encapsulates 1988. And that's essentially what we're doing this season. We picked eight great films from 1988 that resonated, that left an impression, all for different reasons. They Live's legacy is that Roddy Piper was probably one of the greatest on-screen action stars that we never got. Because this film made money and he went back to pro wrestling because there was, there was a payday there for him. You know, he goes back to the WWF. He eventually goes over to the competition, over to WCW, and gets another bag there. He dealt with cancer a couple of times. It went into remission. It came back, and it was cancer of the spine, which is debilitating 
uh, and incredibly painful. And, you know, he went through chemo, he came back. It's really kind of sad because I think that Roddy Piper, again, in a different timeline, another multiverse, Roddy Piper is a huge star. Like, you know, you have your Schwarzenegger, you got your Stallone, Van Damme, and you've got Roddy Piper. I, I think that we were kind of robbed of that. He should have had a, a bigger cinematic career. I think he could have done regular macho bullshit, and that would have totally worked. This wasn't conventional. It's not a conventional way to sell a wrestler as an action star. This movie is making a statement about many different things. So it's a little more heady. I think They Live has made a cultural impact even more so today than it did with its original release. So many of us who are being force-fed this stuff through social media, through advertising, through corporate tie-ins, John Carpenter kind of saw the future. I hate to say it, even though this movie is largely science fiction, a lot of things, as far as thematically, came to pass, came to fruition within the last 10 years due to the rise of mobile devices and social media. It's all there, folks. I mean, you can you can basically draw a straight line between they live and everything that's going on right now in the United States. And that's incredible. John Carpenter is one of my favorite directors. He always makes interesting films, and they're they're definitely saying something, no matter how subtle or how much he puts of it right out there up front. He's always got something to say. And I think that that's really the legacy of John Carpenter. He made movies that are entertaining and that play to a popcorn crowd, but they also have a tremendous amount of craftsmanship as far as the artistic side of it and as well as the emotional side of it. Because you look at a film like Starman, and that movie was tremendous. It probably should have won uh, an Academy Award for some of the acting. Karen Allen is fantastic in that movie, and uh, I think she really didn't get her due. Probably should have been nominated for, at least nominated. She didn't have to win the Academy Award. But that was, Starman was Carpenter's biggest commercial success. And again, people went to They Live expecting their favorite WWF superstar fighting aliens, especially the aforementioned James Cameron's aliens, that's kind of what they thought this movie would be. He's going to take on the bad guys, and there's going to be a lot of action and explosions. And ultimately, that's not what They Live is. They Live is an allegory. It's an allegory for misinformation. And right now, misinformation is the greatest threat to our nation. Misinformation has been tearing this country apart. So I ask you, dear listener, Please, put on the glasses. I don't want to have to beat the shit out of you for five and a half minutes in an alley to put on the glasses. Just put them the fuck on and see things as they are for what they are. And that's our reality. That's what we're dealing with. You can stick your head in the sand or you can pull it out and look towards the sun and see what the hell is really going on. 
And what's really going on is that you need to follow me on social media. Is that dirty? Oh, come on. I'm sorry, folks. I did it. Hey, look, we're on YouTube. Hit me up on Instagram, Twitter, on a TikTok. You know how we do it till you don't stop. Uh, you know, hey, look, man, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying I'm out there. If there's movies that you want to say, hey, Jerry, I want you to do this movie or I'd like an episode about this. Hit me up. I'm open to suggestions. This can be a democratic process if you want it to be. It really can. I'm not at the level yet where I have a Patreon or a way to solicit myself to you. But who knows? Who knows what tomorrow may bring? This has been The Offering. Mostly horror, but always genre. We do our thing here. We are proud of it. Producer Pete says hello. I hope that you are well. Uh, I hope things are going good for you. And I want good things for you, your friends and family. Ladies and gentlemen, good night and good luck. Put those glasses on. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Bune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.